Well, today we have a special treat. We have Ian Hosfeld. He is the managing partner and founder of the Foss Mountain Company. He's a SEAL officer with the U.S. Naval Reserves. Ian, thanks for joining us today. Bob, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. You bet. You know, and Ian and I ran across each other, and Ian's working on purchasing a company. And I thought we would take and dig in with, with his thoughts on the type of company he's looking for and, and some of the criteria. So, Ian, as in a thumbnail sketch, if you would, kind of give us a quick snapshot of what got you from the Navy to where you are today. Yeah, sure, Bob. Yeah, so as Bob mentioned, I was a Navy SEAL officer on active duty for eight years before transitioning from active duty to the reserves, uh, returning to school to get my MBA, and then pursuing this path. And so a couple steps along the way that, uh, you know, led me to this. And one was in, uh, you know, what led me to transition from active duty was 2016. My wife was pregnant with our firstborn, and I was staring at my fourth deployment in five years and didn't see that changing while I was on active duty. And so wanted to be around more for fatherhood and you know, chose to leave active duty, but to still be able to serve while uh, serving in the reserves. And so I did what you know you do when you don't really know what you want to do, and that's go back to school. And so I went and got my MBA. I knew I wanted to do something with entrepreneurship. And what led me to that was my Last uh, tour on active duty, deployed to Iraq and was in charge of a 75-man militia in the uh, upper Euphrates River Valley, helping lead the charge to clear ISIS out of the area. And in my capacity there, I was in charge of manning, training, equipping, and operationally employing this force. And so uh, in many ways, it was, <laughs> I was, you know, had very wide left and right lateral limits and, you know, got to be in charge of this force and, you know, in some perils like being in charge of a company. And so I really loved that autonomy. I loved that ability to make meaningful, you know, decisions and, and have to, uh, think on my feet, having to problem solve, having to work with po individuals both inside and outside the organization. And it was just a very meaningful experience. And I knew, you know, leaving from that, I wanted to replicate that and didn't want to, you know, be a, a cog in a larger machine. And so new entrepreneurship was the right path for me. Uh, while I was at business school, I, I met up with some professors and some investors and mentors that worked with folks such as myself and help uh, advise them and mentor them in uh, going out and purchasing a company after graduation. So I worked with them my last year. I was in business school on a couple academic projects, really got to know them both personally and professionally and as they did me. And so we decided to partner up together after graduating. And so, you know, as it stands now, I am backed by 21 uh, investors ranging from folks that were in my shoes 10 years ago to uh, some, you know, very successful investors to folks that, you know, are investing on behalf of family offices and private equity funds. And so a good mix of people and selected them based off their experiences across industries, across geographies, and across roles that they held within companies. And so I feel like, uh, very fortunate to have them on board my team backing me as a you know entrepreneur 
and providing guidance throughout the whole process. You know, we were, we were talking before the show about the one big thing, and you were talking about the, the one big thing is to take care of the people that you had. And so I was thinking as you took over that business enterprise in the Euphrates Valley, right? And <laughs> probably the wrong word, but you had a product to deliver. <laughs> yeah. so, and so there you go. You know, in, in looking at when you came into that organization and you started trying to work toward taking care of the people in your organization, what was your discovery like and how did you start to prioritize how you were taking care of those folks? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, a couple things in that particular situation that were unique, but then there were some commonalities. And I think a big part of that is that regardless of who you are and what you're doing, you know, you have a professional life and you have a personal life and that it's impossible for you to, you know, totally take off the, the personal life while you are, you know, at, at work. And so I found with these folks that, you know, making sure that I was aware of issues they were having with their families and, you know, if there was something at home that was the matter, then they couldn't focus on what they were doing at work. And so we were better off to, you know, in those cases, give them time away from training to go take care of the issues they were having with their family so that they could come back to us and be 100% committed to what we were doing. And so I think just treating them with that decency and, and respect and, you know, realizing, you know, that uh, we were there for six months and they were going to be there for the rest of their lives and that, uh, you know, our pace versus their pace might be a little different and that, you know, seeing that kind of humanity and empathy with them is would build loyalty and trust and so that was something that i really learned and focused on while i was there you know i, I think about that empathy component you know we hear a lot about that in the business and i don't think that's necessarily associated too well with military but you know in in the empathy side the impact from when you arrived versus some duration of time. When did you start to notice that that approach was starting to have a positive effect on your organization? You know, I, I think it, it does take a little bit of, of time because, you know, when anytime you come into an organization and you're the, the new guy, there's definitely a, a period of building trust and demonstrating competence. And then, you know, I think so that that was the same in there. And I think within, you know, a couple of months of, you know, demonstrating that a person of my word and that there was follow through and what I said and not just hollow words. So that's where we really started to to see that. And then I think where it really, you know, translated was m maybe some of the common soldiers were a little less aware of it, but their leaders who we were working with day in and day out and, you know, had to hear the gripes of the everyday gripes of their men. And, you know, we were there helping them solve it. I think that's where the real trust and relationship started to build was at that level as, you know, we demonstrated that we had their back and that we would help them accomplish, you know, their goals and, and empower them to look like uh, as leaders and, and let them show that strength to their men and earn their trust even more. You know, I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. So, you know, you have this wealth of experience and discipline and academic work that you've done. And 
it's a compliment that the academics and mentors at your your last place of education had confidence in you to back you. And so now you're on the trail. So you're looking for an acquisition. So for the listeners, what is your acquisition target resemble? What are the characteristics? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple different characteristics that I'm looking at. I think one, you know, quick and down, dirty, easy to uh, to sort by is looking at the financial side of things. You know, I, I like to, you know, I'm looking for a business between one and a half million to five million of cash flow EBITDA. You know, I can go a little bit lower than that if it's a, you know, in a fast growing industry or in a hyper fragmented industry where, you know, it's very conceivable that, you know, without uh, having a really aggressive timeline that you'd be able to put together a couple like businesses within a couple of years. And, you know, elaborating a little more on, on the upper end, I you know, set the limit around 5 million, not because my investors don't have the funds or that I don't feel I have the competence or expertise to run an organization of that size. I just realize where my competitive advantages lie. And as you start getting larger and start going against bigger and bigger competitors, strategic buyers, going against, you know, larger private equity shops, you know, I'm coming in as a owner operator. I won't be bringing any companies or portfolio companies in tow. And so I don't have the, you know, synergies or cost savings that such buyers would be bringing in. And so in the competitive pricing market, I just realized that gets a little harder for me. But, uh, you know, that's not, as I mentioned, if if there's a alignment with the seller, both for, you know, wanting to sell to someone like me, an entrepreneur, someone who's going to move their family to the area to run the business and, you know, like my leadership style uh, and my vision for their company, if that all resonates with someone, then by by all means, I, I'd love to take a look at a, uh, the larger business. But I, I'm also a realist, so I, I'm not going to tilt at windmills just for the, the sake of uh, getting reps. And so, you know, that's on the financial side. And then looking at the business characteristic side my investment you know interests lie in businesses with you know highly recurring revenues or highly repeat revenues and i think the reason why i i like those types of businesses is because you have that good visibility year in year out of what the picture is going to look like and so i also realized that you know with these you know some some industries they may have one line of work or a revenue stream that's, you know, more project based or one off, you know, type revenue. And those can be, you know, highly lucrative. But I'd say in those situations, I'm looking for the business to tilt heavier towards that either recurring or repeat repair, maintenance, service, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it type revenue. So that's one of the characteristics. Another big characteristic is looking for, you know, not asset intensive businesses. So not highly reliant on uh, real estate, not having uh, heavy equipment or, you know, heavy manufacturing, not, not the best uh, match. So, you know, 
folks in vans and trucks and, you know, some, some inventory, not a problem. Some, you know, light manufacturing, or, you know, whether that's, you know, CNC machines or something along that line, not an issue. Those are businesses that are like, as you start, as I mentioned, start getting uh, uh, up there in asset intensity, it becomes less and less of a, as a good fit for me as a, a buyer. And, uh, you know, I don't need an uh, industry with super high growth. I, I've found industries that are, you know, have great business characteristics as far as strong recurring revenues, you know, really sticky customer bases. You know, I find those attractive. I think it just comes down to what you have for your growth strategy for the business. And so if it's business that's growing like crazy, then, you know, I'm looking to just tap into the organic growth of that business. If it's a business that's, you know, strong, steady, but just chugging along, then then maybe the strategy is to look for, you know, to utilize this this first acquisition as to form a nice strong base. And then from there looking for maybe some other competitors or, or smaller scale businesses that, you know, I can selectively look at that have good alignment as far as customers they're serving, you know, how they treat their employees that that culture of the organization. And if there's good alignment there, then maybe the growth strategy is by going out and uh, acquiring some more of these, those types of businesses. Do you find in this environment that there's a shortage of opportunities to look at companies? I mean, I've got to believe that there's a fair quantity that you can look at. I don't know that there's a fair quantity that qualify. Yeah, I, I would say you know I've definitely been been as busy as you know as, as as you could be as busy as you're willing to put in the effort in, and so lots of businesses are are available you know for for sale through brokers and bankers, and then I've also had success talking to you know business owners directly, and so I started searching here in August, and so. I wasn't uh, in the market during the early days of COVID. I heard that was a little bit of a slowdown, but I feel now that uh, it's picked right back up. And especially now had a surge of people I was talking to that said, hey, come circle back around the first of the year and let's start talking. And so, you know, very busy times right now. You know, I, I think, you know, for the listener, they're going like, well, I've got a company and, and you know, how do I how do I attract your gaze? But, you know, for some of the businesses that didn't, you know, maybe an example without naming one that didn't make the cut for, to do further due diligence and maybe why that was. Yeah. And so I um, have a couple of philosophies that I, I, you know, think about when I'm buying a business and, you know, one is that I don't expect me as the, the owner and operator coming in without the, you know, 30 years of experience you had as, as the seller. I, I don't believe that, you know, early on in, in my life as the CEO, I'm going to be able to, to operate the business, you know, as effectively as you did with all your experience. And so I think, you know, with that in mind, if there is a seller that's, you know, involved with the business daily operations is in the standpoint that they're still providing some service to clients. They're still, you know, the most pivotal player in the sales or the most pivotal player in the maintaining relationships with a client, you know, that that, that can give me a little bit of pause because, you know, I'll 
be taking over the seat from them. And once again, I don't, don't have that experience that they have and that, you know, years of goodwill with that client. And so if it is those types of situations, there's just more risk for me as a buyer coming in. I think, you know, another situation that has caused issues in deals to die on my end is maybe you have a fantastic business model. It's in a nice industry, great margins, good cash flow, everything from a financial picture looks great. But then, you know, we start talking some more and I find out that 50 plus percent of your business is from this one client. And uh, I think in those situations, the way a mentor of mine phrased it was, those are wonderful businesses to own, not wonderful businesses to buy. And, you know, you built a special relationship with a client that, you know, you've maybe you've uh, worked with them and they've grown and scaled over the years and you've scaled with them, but they still remain a, a large portion of your revenue. And as a buyer, that just gives me a little bit of pause and makes it harder to pay you, you know, a great value for the, for the business because there's a lot more risk for me as the buyer, because as I mentioned, I don't have that relationship. And if some something was to happen, you know, all of a sudden your business doesn't look the same as it does before with that, you know, uh, gaping hole in, in the uh, income statement. Do you think that when, when you're talking to these various business owners, do you think that they're surprised in many cases when you bring up, you know, client concentration, you know, you're the CEO, you're the chief salesman, you're also the, the marketing, I mean, you're everybody. Do you think they're surprised when they hear that? Yeah, I, th- I think so, Bob. One, one part that I, I found in the, the situations with the, especially true with the uh, relationship with clients and customers is, you know, folks will be really proud of the relationships they've formed with people. And, you know, I think that that does, that does mean something. And I don't want to, you know, say that it, it's, it doesn't have value, but, you know, it's hard to take that, uh, that good faith to the bank when there's, uh, you know, concentration risks that, you know, isn't settled by, by a legal contract. That's, you know, a lot, you know, it's a good thing to have with the business, but it's a lot of times that, you know, trust relationships, just not enough to, to bridge the gap, you know, with, with a a lender or, uh, you know, to get financing for a deal. And it's just a, a lot of risk for a buyer. Well, you know, I, I think the owner may have a perception. He says, look at all my financials. And, you know, from the buyer's perspective, you go, I'd have to discount this risk so much that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to like the deal. Yeah. You, know, you, you might like the eventual money if it all comes to pass, but you're not going to like the deal structure. Yeah. You know, and that's true. And I don't, I have a big proponent of, of keeping things simple. And so if you're only able to get the deal to work through a complex structure that, you know, both sides barely <laughs> comprehend, it's just not not a good start. I'd rather keep it, you know, stupid simple and, you know, it's, you know, a simple mixture of, you know, maybe, you know, cash at close and either uh, a seller's note or and earn out for part of it, not layer upon layer of, of complexity, you know, where at the end of the day, there's a high likelihood that we'll have differing opinions about certain terms being met. And so that's just not a, 
not a good relationship starter and not a, not a good point to begin with. You know, I, I think about the timing of you starting to to look for businesses and so on. And so COVID has just kind of come through and it's rippled through various companies. You know, when you're looking at some of these companies and you know, presumably they're going to be at some trajectory pre-COVID and they're on some other trajectory during COVID, when you have that discussion with the business owner, how do they view or represent the, the, you know, there's some businesses that have accelerated camping and that kind of stuff, but how do they, how do they view that? It is very much case by case. And I think it, it also depends on, on how it's impacted them. So example, you know, I'm based in San Diego here in California. And so the governor here shut like everything down from, you know, March through April. And so if you took a hit, just for that time period and then you know sales and everything bounce back then that, that's a lot easier you know gap to bridge and you know discussion to be had if there is you know material difference from this year to previous years whether you're you're the beneficiary and you're in the camping and rv industry mm -hmm. or you're the you know someone who's getting destroyed say you're the uh you know you're doing the uh commercial well, kitchen commercial yeah, kitchen yeah. you know uh, supply or maintenance and your restaurant side of the business has just gotten crushed those are two you know much tougher valuation conversations to have and so there would be, you know, trying to find some sort of, you know, either averaged earnings over a couple of years, or that's when, you know, that's where I think it would be more appropriate to to look at maybe adding in, in an earnout or, you know, heavier seller financing, something where, you know, you get to cap as a seller, you get to capture more value and get that, you know, more fair, more, uh, I guess, uh, normalized value instead of this kind of extraordinary times that we're living in. But because it's so, so variable and we don't know what's in store for us for the next six months, you know, yeah, alone two years. It's just, I, personally, I've tried to stay away from industries that have had that sort of effect on the business because I, I just think that is a, a very tough conversation to have. And unless you have, as a buyer, you know, a really strong opinion or experience in that industry, you're, or a much higher risk appetite than me, <laughs> it's just hard, hard to get around. You know, as, as you're out there with the business owner community and looking at the deals, you know, things that stick out in your mind as far as the owner knowledge gap, you know, like they'll go, you know, I, I come in every day, I work my butt off, I'm the sales guy, or yeah, I run the company and I don't have a chief offering officer, or, you know, my CPA does my, um, my financials and I don't have audited or reviewed financials. What's the biggest gap or series of gaps you think the owners have with respect to selling? I think, you know, one thing, you know, I, I've heard about it is from some sellers is hearing some story of what someone else received and, you know, what someone paid versus what your value is, is there can be a discrepancies there. So, so maybe, maybe your friend got the, the deal of the century 
or maybe your friend's business was that much more valuable because, you know, instead of, you know, they had their revenue was through a contract, whereas yours is kind of at will. And so there, there is, you know, some more legal standing to their, uh, you know, future revenues, you know, or that, you know, their, their margins were that much better than yours or they had some intellectual property that maybe you don't have and so i think you know understanding what the price what people paid versus what the value is and i don't think there's anything wrong with you know as a seller you have some number in your mind and you know regardless of what you know the comparable you know pricing is for for your industry if you want to stick to that you know that, that that's fine but you know and just waiting for that that buyer who's willing to pay that but i think if you are serious about selling and you know you're you're ready to to retire ready to transition from your you know current role then you know having an understanding of what the market is and in regards to multiples and an understanding of you know, what is it that enables these companies to achieve those, that price range, whether revenue size or, you know, some of the factors I mentioned around building that competitive moat or their margins, growth trajectory, all of those things can play a factor in, you know, why someone might get the upper price range versus the lower price range for the industry. My sense is there's a big disconnect between revenue and value. And then I mm-hmm. think there's a disconnect on what the value drivers are for an industry. You know, and, and for you, you know, when, when you're getting, you're looking at deals. So you got deals from the business owner, you got deals from brokers and deals from private, you know, various and sundry people in the marketplace. You know, what's your observation when you get shown a deal from a broker versus being shown a deal from an individual business owner? Well, I would say that that on the brokerage side, you come across a, a whole spectrum of folks, some folks that have a lot of experience to those that have very little, or even if they have been involved in the industry for a long time, you know, wide disparity as far as uh, Sims, marketing material, what they put together, the thoroughness of it, and you know, so I would say, on on average, if you're in a, um, you know, on the more professional side, you know, the sim will probably answer a lot of those high level questions of, you know, before we even have a conversation with and the broker. Sim, and a sim is what? Uh, was it the confidential yeah. information uh, memorandum? Memorandum. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, they, they got, got me there on the acronym. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't pooch it. So the. Uh, yeah. So if you are talking uh, with a, you know, a broker or a banker kind of worth their salt, then they have hit some of the main questions that you're going to be asking. You know, if there was a down, you know, if revenues bumped way up or way down for some reason, an explanation of why that happened. If there's margin improvements, what you know caused that? If there's what is the customer concentration? You know, if it, if there is something that looks like customer concentration, maybe they're breaking it out some more to say, hey, while the the end client is this big company, you know, you're dealing with different divisions within the company, or you have five different contracts with the company, and so you know, 
it is there still is some risk, but it's been de-risked because of these steps. And so you, you'll have that available in a more professional process. And then when you're talking, I think, to, to owners, it can be, once again, it can be a spectrum. It can be people that are serial entrepreneurs and have sold businesses before and, you know, have worked with like an exit planner or have worked with a consultant or advisor in the past and, or got an evaluation of their business done. And so, you know, they have seen, you know, at some past point what their strengths and weaknesses were for the business and have been working at, you know, building upon the strengths, <laughs> eliminating the weaknesses. And so when you have that conversation with you, they're able to, you know, kind of lay out quickly the good, the bad, the ugly, and what they've done to, to improve the business recently. And then, you know, you have other people that honestly, this is their first time coming into a transaction. They don't even know what the terms are, what the process is like, what the outcome is like. And so, you know, I am in those types of situations, I, I like to try to help them as much as possible. And regardless of whether I'm the right buyer, I, I'd like to point them in the right direction as far as, hey, just this is my quick observations for you of what I like about your business. Here's some risks or concerns I might have. And, you know, here's how if you were to improve upon this, you know, you would drive a, a better valuation for your, for your company. And so it's, it really, really is across the board. You know, I, I would say in general, the rule of thumb is that the brokered or intermediary process is, you know, they've kind of more professional, solve maybe some problems, you know, because they've been working with them, working with this advisor for, you know, a year, but uh, not, not always the case. You know, I, I think about your journey and you've got a really deep bench of mentors, you know, that have been around the track. You know, you've been around the track. I think you know what a crappy day looks like, you know, <laughs> and, and this don't look like that kind of thing, yeah. you know. So what message might you say to the business owner that's listening that maybe would check all the boxes? What should they do? listening to this podcast if they think they've got the company that will fit your parameters? Ah, well, hopefully re reach out to me at uh, ian at fossmountain.co. But uh, yeah, I would say, you know, one thing, uh, if, the, if someone is serious about wanting to, to sell their business, I, I think that you know, I, one, I would love to talk to you, but I think, you know, talking to you as an individual and wanting to see your success, I would say, you know, first talk to a CPA or an exit planner or some sort of fiduciary to come up with a plan for you and make sure this is the right time. You know, this is going to be a very transformative event for you and, you know, wanting to make sure that you understand the, the tax impl implications and so that you're, you know, that paycheck you have in your mind is going to match what you receive after Uncle Sam takes his. And then, you know, I think also on, on a personal level, if this has been your day in and day out, your baby for, you know, years, you know, do you have that what's next figured out for you? And so that, you know, you leave this, you take your breather, whatever is right for you, but then you transition into, you know, your, your next calling or, you know, have something to line up to, to fill your days. I think that's something I've talked to some people that uh, gets overlooked and that they don't have that in mind that, you know, I'm no longer going to be 
this isn't going to take my day in and day out. And then the, the other thing I've been told from a variety of folks is when you're going into this transaction, hire, uh, retain a M&A lawyer. Don't use your buddy who, you know, is a, a, a PI uh, lawyer or your real estate guy. Use a, a, a M&A lawyer. And this helps smooth the transaction and make sure that you're receiving the best legal advice possible. You know, I've talked to folks that, that you know, both that have heated this advice and those that have not. And the, the common outcome is I, you know, was glad or I wish that I, I had retained a, a M&A lawyer. I think from a buyer's perspective, we know we're working with someone who knows what's market rate for, you know, terms and structures, can explain them to you to make sure that you fully understand and that at the 11th hour, when you finally do you, it's not at 11th hour, you finally figure it out and now the deal blows up. And even assuming that, you know, nothing is wrong, if someone isn't experienced with, you know, purchase agreements and due diligence issues, at the very least, it's it's just going to be a slower process and and time kills deals. And so that's no good for for both parties. Well, there's the deal fatigue and the emotional roller coaster. Yeah. You know, and I would add on to the right advisor, see if you can find an M&A attorney that's actually done a transaction in your industry. (laughs) And if you find a broker or somebody else, make sure that they've done a transaction in your industry, you know, those kind of things. So they at least have plowed that field before. Well, you know, Ian, I, I tell you, I saw a picture of you and your family on your website. That's a great look in family you've got there and and understand it's been a few years since mine were that size you know (laughs) and and you know appreciate the path that you're going down and the contribution that you've made you know from your years of service so for the folks out there that are listening if you either are a business owner that are looking to create a relationship with a young gentleman like ian here or if you know of someone please urge them to reach out to him He's available and you can find him and he's also on LinkedIn as well. And there'll be links in the show notes about how to get a hold of you. Ian, any parting words you'd like to say to folks? So I, I just, you know, last uh, closing bit would be, you know, I, I'd love to get in contact with you if you are a business owner looking to sell. And uh, even if I'm not the right buyer for you for a variety of reasons, you know, i I have a network of, of folks that I think very highly of, both individuals and institutions that I'd, I'd be happy to, to point you in the right direction. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm all about building relationships and uh, helping people out. And so, you know, I'd love to work with you and complete a deal and, you know, continue building upon your success. But at the very least, I, I'd like to help you uh, find, find that uh, right buyer for you. Ian. I really appreciate you taking time and we'll go from here. So thank you very much. All right, Bob. Thanks so much for having me.